This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today I am speaking with Mary Beth Albright, the author of Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. Mary Beth is a food expert, and she's got a great deal of experience, uh, including being a food attorney. Uh, she was also a finalist on, uh, what is it, uh, Iron Chef America? I was in Iron Chef America, yes, as part of the New Food Network Star program. So, yeah, it was very exciting. Uh, Mary Beth is a frequent panel moderator, including for the U.S. State Department and the Smithsonian. And her food judging expertise is sought regularly, including the time she ate 2,000 foods in three days to judge the Outstanding New Products Awards. Wow. But uh, right now, let's talk about this new book and uh, Eat and Flourish. And welcome, Mary Beth. Thank you so much, John. I'm thrilled to be here and talking to your audience. Tell us about the the, the premise of this book, how, how eating affects our uh, emotional well-being. Sure. Well, food and emotions are entwined. And we know this anecdotally just from living our lives in the world and feeling pleasure and joy from food. But for the past 15, 15 or 20 years, there's been significant scientific evidence, peer-reviewed, published, that there is a food-mood connection. And you can either get to know what that food-mood connection is and the biological basis of it and befriend it and learn how to use it, or you can deny that it's there. And it's there regardless. So trying to live in reality. And, you know, a lot of people label it emotional eating, which which has a negative connotation. But in the research, I found all eating is emotional eating. There are biological reactions that happen in your body, and it's really good to get to know them. Okay. So I know for sure that I, I am affected by what I eat. I had dinner at a, a local restaurant here last week, and it was... Um, it was an emotional experience. <laughs> it was, Tell me about it. I love hearing these things. Yeah. Tell me, tell me. It was wonderful. It was an Italian restaurant called Sasella. I'm giving them a plug right now. And actually, my son works there as a, as a food runner. It's Italian food, and I had also buco, and it was unbelievable. And uh, every every bite just uh, felt fulfilling and nourishing. And uh, uh, I had uh, I, I I don't know an endorphic uh, reaction to it. So that's real. I mean, this is a great, this is a great example to put out there because you're at Sacella, your, your son is a food runner. So you're connected with the place in that way. You have an asabuco, which takes hours and hours to make and falls off the bone and smells delicious. All of these things are sensory for you and they all enhance food pleasure. Which it absolutely did. It was, it was a great evening. Okay. Now, What's the science behind it? Yeah, so I've been looking at this science for about 15, 20 years. And it all started 15 years ago. I was sitting at my desk at the Surgeon General's office and a um, a, a journal article passed over my desk and I was taking a look at it. And it showed that omega-3 fatty acids reduced aggression in men with aggression problems. And I thought to myself, my gosh, this is the first time I've ever seen food related to um, emotions and to mental health connections. And so, um, and it was a peer reviewed journal. And so I started looking into this and at the same time that I was looking into it, the science really exploded. A lot of people started doing some research about it. And we now see all the evidence that how we feel affects what we eat and what we eat affects how we feel. And importantly for me anyway, 
these effects happen independent of weight because my entire life I sort of associated when you eat for health, you eat for weight loss, right? And, and it's not about that. It's about enhancing your the biological processes that go into food pleasure um, and can sustain us long-term with emotional well-being. We're, I guess, pleasure-seeking uh, organisms. And so yeah. that's that's why we're, we're going after the food we're going after. Yeah. Uh, Okay, just like the biological imperative uh, for reproduction, there is a physical reward for doing that. So eating foods we like, we get a positive physical, emotional reaction. But is it also, you said it's not just for eating healthy. Are we drawn to healthy foods that make us feel good? Well, let's let's step back a few because I understand I you know this is all very new and so I understand the question. When I was researching, I found four things that really we need to look at when we look at eating for long-term mental health and emotional well-being. One of them we've already talked about, it's pleasure. Yeah. And there are shortcuts to pleasure, like through ultra-processed foods that are fat and sugar bombs, right? Yeah. Those give our brains a ton of pleasure. I'm not here to deny that. That's why we're saying like it's really important to understand um, the biology of it. But there are other things that you can do. And chefs use a lot of these tricks in restaurants. I come from a public health and restaurant background. And so um, chefs will use these tricks because we, we know that flavor is created in the brain. Sure, you taste on your tongue and you have the five basic tastes, but the the entire appreciation of food happens in your brain. And what matters with that? Everything. What you see matters. People who eat the same dessert on a circular plate versus a rectangular plate will rate the dessert on the circular plate as sweeter. We don't know why in the brain the bra that the brain does that, but we know that the brain does that association between round things and sweetness. And then we get, I get into this also with mouthfeel that um, when Cadbury changed its uh, dairy milk um, shape in the, in the United Kingdom from rectangular to round, people wrote in angry that the formula had changed and that it was sweeter now. It wasn't sweeter. It was just, the, they call it mouth geometry, the way that food hits the mouth in the same way that maybe you get a lot of pleasure out of drinking sparkling water. I drink sparkling water constantly. I love it. And, you know, soda stream all the time. Right. And, and that it has to do with the way that the food hits your tongue. And so everything counts. What we, what we see, what we smell, what we hear. People who ate stale chips rated the chips as pretty gross, as one would think. When you eat stale chips, piping in the noise of crunching sounds, you'll rate the chips as fresher. Just everything matters. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, okay. So, uh, the, the human mind has a uh, great capacity to uh, fool itself, obviously, or, or to make itself feel better. Um, well, yeah, that's right. And, but there's also the, these biological things. So that, that gets into neuroscience of pleasure. Then the other three things I took a look at are the gut microbiome, which is something that there's been a lot of research about over the past 20 years. It's the trillions of bacteria and fungi and viruses that live in your digestive tract. And that's from the mouth all the way to the other end. And we find that these microorganisms inside of us depending on what kind of microorganisms we have, will regulate sleep, will regulate social anxiety, will regulate the metabolism of medications. And so what we eat 
affects the gut microbiome, affects what, what microbes you have in your body. Um, and so, for example, there are lots of studies showing that people who eat yogurt um, have a lower stress response than people who don't. Um, we are just beginning to understand the mechanics of behind that. But, you know, it's not all just neuroscience. It's also biology. And that gut microbiome is really important. I've heard a number of things on gut health and mental health, the connection between it. And correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I, I may well be, but I, I thought I had seen something about the connection between gut health and manifesting schizophrenia. They're doing a lot of research when it comes to the gut microbiome, and we don't know a ton about it yet. And it's tricky because at one point they were looking at people with type 2 diabetes and looking at what kind of gut bacteria they had. And they found this gut bacteria that was in common with everybody. And they thought, oh my gosh, maybe we found what causes type 2 diabetes. And then it turned out that it was something that was a byproduct of the drug metformin, which most people with type 2 diabetes are on. So it, it really, it, you really get into the weeds with that kind of stuff. And that's why it was so important for me to be entirely evidence-based, to go back to my public health background, to look for things that are peer-reviewed. And we know that the gut microbiome has a lot to do with our mental health. And also, if your gut microbes don't have enough to eat, they eat fiber. So we, when we eat fiber, we feed those microbes. Uh, if they don't have enough to eat, they'll eat away at your gut lining. And that will cause leaky gut disease. And we know that leaky gut disease is also associated with poor mental health outcomes. So we it's a system. And a right. lot of people think of as a body as just like a container for all these parts bumping around in it. It's not. It's, it's, it's an entire system and everything affects everything else. And the entire system runs on food. That's what your hormones are made out of. That's what your neurotransmitters are made out of. So you also talk about inflammation and the impact that that has and specific foods, I imagine, really can either trigger that or uh, ameliorate it. So tell us about that a little bit. Sure. Well, inflammation is just your body's immune system reacting. And so you think about it, if you put a, if you have a cut on your finger, the finger swells a little, it gets hot, gets a little engorged with blood. That's what happens. That's the reaction. Our bodies sometimes will react to ultra processed foods the same way that it will react to other kinds of threats in our bodies. So with that inflammation, with the release of cortisol, with the release of adrenaline, and if you don't use that adrenaline by doing something physical or fighting off a threat, then it's going to lead to inflammation in your body. When that happens, there are, there are inflammatory compounds that get released into your blood and travel to your brain. And we used to think until about 20 years ago that the brain was completely protected from any kind of junk in the blood by what's called the blood-brain barrier. We found out in the past 20 years that the blood-brain barrier is not impermeable. It's semi-permeable. So little teeny things can get through the tightly packed cells that are guarding the brain. We can, you can get those inflammatory compounds past that blood-brain barrier, and it can wreak real havoc with your mental health and emotional well-being. Okay. So- what kind of diet would you recommend or either diet or supplements would you say are important for people to use to maintain good mental health? Well, diet is the way, right? I mean, if, we, if you look at the food system is perfect. I'll give it this example. Some people stay away from eating nuts because they're high in fat. Well, nuts are also high in vitamin E, so which is a fat-soluble vitamin. So if you eat the nut, 
you get the vitamin and you get the fat that you need to absorb that vitamin. So the system is perfect. We're just not using it because we're just not eating whole foods anymore. So what is most evidence-based is the Mediterranean diet, which can also be, you know, an Okinawan Japanese diet or a Norwegian diet. It's just whole foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, fatty fish, oils like olive oil it's the stuff that you've already heard about but it's to me it's a new why and the fact that it's in that these results for mental health is independent of weight loss to me is so exciting because you know my entire life you associate weight loss with health and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be part of that picture it's one thing to say yeah uh, let's follow the mediterranean diet or, or any of these other diets frankly that can be difficult for people to do just either by location or by income. How Absolutely. Do we- or or by mental health status. As we all know, when we're not feeling great emotionally, it's harder to do things. It's harder to do everything, including eat well, including cook, that kind of thing. As far as the income and the, lo- the as far as the socioeconomic concern, which I completely understand, and those are there's so many upstream problems that we have right now with mental health globally, you know, pandemic, access to food, food security, all of those things. Those are all upstream problems that people here in my home city of Washington, D.C. are trying to address. The book is about the downstream issue, which is we're all individuals. How do we do this? So with respect to that, a lot of the studies that are looking at how people eat and mental health will track how did the people eat before and how did they eat after and how much did those diets cost? And it's they found that the Mediterranean diet is less expensive than the ultra processed diet that people were eating beforehand. But I understand your concern about access to fresh food. I mean, just because it is less expensive in one area doesn't mean it's not more expensive in another area. And so like canned tuna, I was talking about fatty fish, you know, a piece of salmon can be really expensive. Canned tuna or canned salmon has all those omega-3 fatty acids in them. And And it's not just what we eat, it's how we eat it. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is the importance of eating with other people. It's something that I call the feast paradox, which is people who eat with other people eat more food in one sitting. But they also enjoy hot, better health outcomes. And so there's a lot that has to do with food that's around the food that is about the feeling of communal, uh, of community, of working with your hands, of all those things that, that really matter when it comes to food and emotional well-being. Which I guess lends itself to the idea of, you know, the traditional Italian family around the table every evening and there's that, that conversation and not just Italians, but many, many cultures. I'm Italian, but my birth name was Zuppa. So, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah, It's the married name. Lost the husband, kept the name, but. Okay. um, Well, Zuppa, that's soup, right? Yeah, it's but we only spelled with one P. The joke is that we lost a P at Ellis Island. We couldn't afford two P's, so we only <laughs> they only gave us one. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Music and information from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on our Patreon support button to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. So 
the follow-up to that was uh, there are a lot of people that just uh, don't like Thanksgiving because because they are around the table with a bunch of other people. What's uh, is, is that just a one-off because it's Thanksgiving and it, it's one of these uh, emotional events, or uh, uh, is it still? It's no matter what, it's better to have company when you're you're having a meal. Well, look, I mean, I remember in 2016 after the election that the big joke was that you couldn't have knives at Thanksgiving dinner, right? And it, and it seems it seems it's only gotten worse since. Right. And personally for me, I had Thanksgiving, I brought Thanksgiving dinner into a nursing home where my father is mm -hmm. and, you know, carved the turkey there. And, and it was, you know, it, it's, we all know we can be alone and be fine. And we can be in a room full of people and feel lonely, right? So, yeah. of course, it matters who you're eating with. But I do think, you know, with something like Thanksgiving, even if you have a terrible actual Thanksgiving, which, believe me, been there, um, can totally relate to that with, with family of origin issues. Even if you have that bad meal, you can use it as an impetus to eat with other people at other times, your chosen family, the people who have stuck by you. And so I went I went from that Thanksgiving dinner to having a really great breakfast with two of my two of my dear friends. And there's a lot that goes into mental health that that has nothing to do with food. And and then there's there are things that have that go into mental health that have to do with food tangentially. And getting together with other people is one of those things. And it can give you that, that feeling of well-being that is associated with better mental health outcomes. Getting back to the Thanksgiving piece, you know, the following day, one of my favorite things to do is that that cold turkey sandwich with, you know, the oh, sure. bread and the mayonnaise. And it's there's a lot of nostalgia associated with that for me. And so, I mean, food tastes, smells, all of those things stick in memory a long time. And so if there's something positive, I guess, associated with those things, that's oh, one absolutely. way to right, back, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, th and all those things can increase your enjoyment of that meal. I mean, that memory, that flavor memory sticks with us and the, and the smell memory too. Mm -hmm. um, it all sticks with us and can really contribute to us loving our food more. Um, Mary Beth, what would you say is one of the most important things you want folks to take away from your book? You can be a person who both loves food and enjoys food pleasure and eats for emotional well-being because pleasure is a form of nourishment. And if we get to know our brains and our emotional eating, rather than hating them and denying them and trying to get away from them, if we get to know those things, we can incorporate those the the neuroscience into our eating pattern in really really simple ways that will be have noticeable effects on our emotional well-being and that is something that all of your readers can take away from your new book eat and flourish how food supports emotional well-being what's your favorite food Oh my gosh, nobody's done a lightning round with me yet. I'm so glad you're doing this, John. Um, you know, uh, oh God, I had a really great bagel this morning. I do love bagels. I'm, I'm from New York City originally. And what I really love about this bagel place, and this goes to like everything matters, they put everything seasoning on both sides of the bagel. Why don't people do that? 
Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like you eat the top of the bagel and then you get to the bottom and it's basically a plain bagel with a few poppy seeds. It's like, why don't people put, and it's all the things that go into that. It's the, it's feeling like somebody sees you, right? I like everything seasoning. That's why I'm getting this bagel. And um, and the 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 mouthfeel, the chem, it's called chemisthesis, the irritation on your tongue that happens from all those poppy seeds and sesame seeds and big pieces of salt, garlic, that really adds to the food enjoyment too. So I'm not sure if it's my favorite food, but I had that for breakfast and darn, it was good. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, mouthfeel is important. So toasted or untoasted bagel? Depends on the bagel. If it's a good bagel, it's untoasted always, always. Okay. I mean, do if, if I go to a bagel shop, a good bagel shop with someone and they ask for the bagel toasted, I, I have a problem with that. I'm uh, just saying. Okay. Well, because it's so fresh. If it's a fr good, fresh bagel. But now okay. people are going to know if I go in somewhere and I order a bagel toasted, they're going to be like, oh, you hate our bagels. So, <laughs> so don't tell anyone my secret. Keep All this right. between us. We'll keep that on the down low then. Yeah. All right. You've recommended the Mediterranean diet. Uh, obviously, you have a bias because you're Italian. Um. <laughs> That's what the science shows. I, I'm oh, okay. what the science shows. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I, I, I'd agree with you. And uh, what's your favorite snack? Oh, apple. I just discovered these. And that sounds so virtuous. I love all things. I'm not a monster, but like I just discovered this new kind of apple called Evercrisp. And uh -huh. it's a hybrid between, I think it's a Honeycrisp and a Fuji. And it is so good. And I can only find them at the farmer's market. So every Sunday I go to the farmer's market here in Washington, D.C. and I buy, They you can you can get a huge bag of apples and they charge you 20 bucks for it. And so, and they're, and they are absolutely fantastic apples and they last forever. Never had a mushy one or a mealy one. So I do love an apple sometimes with peanut butter and then like the really thick, the really craggly sea salt on top of it. Because then it's like a crate, it's a texture bomb because it's like crunchy apple, creamy peanut butter, craggly salt, just like everything's happening in my brain. Very good. You said that's a hybrid that which brought to mind. What about GMO, non-GMO foods? Sure. So uh, we don't know yet. There's not enough evidence about how GMOs or non-GMOs affect the things that that affect eating for emotional well-being and that's understandable because we're just now figuring out about the gut microbiome we're just now figuring out about how pleasure impacts that food pleasure impacts the neuroscience there's no hard evidence about that so i don't want to give but there is hard evidence that foods that are grown today have less nutrition in them than foods that were grown 100 years ago. Right. And why, we're not sure. Is it soil depletion? Is it pesticide? Like, no, no one knows, right? So there is some evidence about that. And there's a lot of evidence that buying food at a farmer's market and interacting with those people and, and being careful about your choices and that kind of thing can really heighten our food pleasure as well. Favorite guilty pleasure food? There are no guilty pleasures. <laughs> I, I do not agree with the premise of the question. You all um, have permission now. Yeah. You've heard it. You've heard it right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I'm happy to. You know what? I, I love, God, again, I'm going to sound like a monster. I love raisinets at the movies. People are like, oh, God, raisinets. Like, but if you put them in the popcorn, that's really good because it's like sweet, salty, crunchy, chewy, 
smooth. It's got everything in it. So a friend of mine taught me that in my 20s, and I don't do it often, but when I do it, man, I, I go at it. Okay, that's a good one. I'm going to have to remember that one. Yeah, yeah. You just dump the raisinets into the pot, like dump them straight in the popcorn. It's crazy. Oh yeah. I know. I know. Well, you said, I think that's the kind of thing you're talking about is something that like, totally, is, totally. that you're totally embarrassed by, ashamed of, that shows that you have no, you know, gourmet <laughs> taste whatsoever. Like, yes, yes, please. <laughs> All right. Mary Beth, where can people find this book? everywhere you can find it at barnes and noble and amazon and independent bookstores it's it's everywhere and i really hope people will buy it and learn more about their own food pleasure and their own mental health do you have a website that they could go to i do it's marybethalbright.com it has some of my work at the washington post and at national geographic that i've done also i'm on twitter at, at marybeth and on instagram at mary.beth we will include the, those links as part of the podcast so people can go and, and visit you directly. So as we wind up, uh, final thoughts on your book, on mental health, and on food pleasure. I mean, enjoy yourself this season. And it, it, if you are thinking about doing something on January 1st, that changes your relationship with your food, but doesn't lead have that restrictive feeling that can lead to poor mental health. Think about think about buying this book, and there's a there's a 30 day plan in the back that is not restrictive at all. That is just you know exploring your mind and your own pleasure and your own body. So what could be better in the new year? On that positive note, we will uh, conclude for today. Mary Beth, thank you so much for being here. John, thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been great. You know what? Let's let's have you back. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm in. January, February, you know, people are gonna be looking for positive resolutions, and I'm here for it. Let's make a plan then. Okay. Uh we'll make a plan. We'll make a resolution for a resolution. <laughs> it's a definite maybe. All right. Thank you so much, Mary Beth. And for Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.